Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions of sex and sexual anatomy and brief reference to sexual violence. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, who discovered the clitoris? You may remember from episode 20 of this podcast called All About the Clitoris that I declared the clitoris to be the greatest thing ever. And since it's a structure of such great importance, I decided it needed another episode. If you haven't listened to the first one yet, I highly recommend it. There's some good debunking that happens. You may be wondering, how do I follow up an episode called All About the Clitoris with more about the clitoris? Well, I find an expert who wrote a fascinating book about the history of the clitoris. On today's episode, I welcome Sarah Chadwick, the author of The Sweetness of Venus, A History of the Clitoris. We will learn even more about the ups and downs in the life of the clitoris, its involvement in witchcraft, its repeated discovery and repression, and why we need more nicknames for it. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first, I wanted to note that in my interview with Sarah, we use the terms woman and female to refer to people with clitorises. I want to note that, of course, not all people with clitorises are women, and not all women have clitorises. Sarah Chadwick is the author of The Sweetness of Venus, A History of the Clitoris, a provocative, straight-talking history that exposes the denial, misunderstanding, brutality, and lies endured by this taboo body part. Chadwick's book challenges Western culture's definition of female sexuality and invites the reader to reframe the narrative through a delightful mix of surprising research, humor, and social commentary. Sarah studied at Durham University, the University of London, and Warwick University in the UK, and is a guest researcher at Loyola University in Chicago. She splits her life between the US and the UK and has four children. Here's my conversation with Sarah. Welcome, Sarah. At least, Dawn, thank you very much for hosting me. Uh, I was thrilled to be invited on your podcast because I have admired its rigor and range ever since I discovered it through uh, Instagram. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. And I quite enjoyed your book, which we will get into today because I think it's fun and fascinating. And let's jump right in. So to start off, your book is called Sweetness of Venus. Where did that name come from? Yes, I have to say it wasn't the working title of, of the book. Uh, the working title of the book was something entirely different. But uh, the name, The Sweetness of Venus, came from, in 1559, uh, an anatomist called Rialdo Colombo claimed to have uh, discovered, in inverted commas, the clitoris. And um, he said, and in fact, I've got a quote here, if it is permissible to give a name to things discovered by me, it should be called the love or sweetness of Venus. Um, and and my agent said, but but this is the perfect title for your book. <laughs> and as soon as she said it, I thought, yes, she, she is right. And and one of the things that I talk about in the book is, you know, how do we lose such a loving and affectionate a term for this part of, of our bodies that brings so much pleasure? 
Um, so, so that was the title. But in fact, I, I tell a story at the beginning of the book. The working title for the book was The History of Your Hippopotamus. And, and that <laughs> came from uh, my daughter who once I gave her the label for her clitoris when she was about four was just absolutely delighted to have a word and and ran up to a stranger and said do you know do you know I've got a and I was thinking oh my goodness what am I going to say and she said I have a hippopotamus between my legs and (laughs) (laughs) so so that was the working title but yes the sweetness of Venus That's great. Can you tell us how you came to writing a book on the history of the clitoris? Yes, if you told me five years ago that that this is what I would have written, I I wouldn't have believed you, although I had always wanted to write a a book that was um, engaged with gender studies and and would write about the experiences of of women. I, I was I had recently moved to America and my teaching qualification wasn't valid. And I thought, okay, this is your opportunity to write a book. You've always wanted to do it. You have always had kind of one foot in academic research and one foot in teaching. And I, and I was looking for a nonfiction idea. And within one week, my daughter, who was in her late twenties said, "Mummy, can I ask you something? Can I ask you how sex really works? And and she said, oh, I'm having a nice time. It's OK. Of course, I understand the mechanics of it, but I don't think I'm doing it quite right. I, I don't think I'm having an orgasm. And, and, and we talked about it. And I realized that although I had considered myself a liberal mother and I had given her labels for her anatomy, we hadn't I hadn't ever really talked to her about female desire and pleasure all shared with her the fact that many, many women, you know, it's not as easy as it's made to look in porn or on the TV. You know, the penetration uh, doesn't work for many, many women. And, and and also if it does, it can take a bit of time to work out how to get it to, to work for an orgasmic experience. And so, and that sort of started me thinking, gosh, I had assumed that that maybe everybody knew more than I had known when I was much younger. And she started talking about what her friends knew and her friends' experiences. And that backtracked me into why are we still having this conversation in 2021? Um, what do people know about female sexuality, female sexual desire and pleasure? What is the culture that surrounds us now? And the more I discovered about things like the orgasm gap, what happens in sex ed in in the UK and the difference between sex ed in America sent me back down a rabbit hole of how how do we have this culture still and and that took me right back so so that was one and then that same week a girlfriend with younger children had a conversation and she said I just don't know what what I what label I should give my daughter for her anatomy and do I give her her clitoris as a, as a label age three or do I just talk about vagina and we talked about the confusion around well actually it's a vulva and yes why why wouldn't you give her clitoris if you're giving your son's penis and scrotum then then why withhold clitoris why is clitoris in some way gosh you know this idea of if we give them the word clitoris we're going to be sexualizing our daughters when giving them the word penis does not is not seen to be sexualizing boys at all and and those two things were were the spark point for 
the research and then realising that although there was masses of fabulous academic work on the field, there wasn't a book that men and women would pick up and enjoy reading and explore the history in a way that was accessible. And that was the beginning. Awesome. I love that you said about the book that, that you thought it was fun because I wanted it to be fun and enjoyable and uh, to be rigorous, but but also not off-putting. Yeah, and it absolutely meets that fine line, right? <laughs> like it's got tons of really important information and lots of research and you really dug into the historical record, but also you're kind of making fun of people and making fun of like how we talk about it and how this history has disappeared and then reemerged and all of those aspects of it. And and I think humor is a great way when people are struggling with taboo or a sense of anxiety about it and 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 just sometimes an ironic one line of gentle humor or or, or pointing out the ridiculousness of mm-hmm. something eases people up to to kind of let go of some of that anxiety. Absolutely. So for some more fun and funny things, um, there are a number of nicknames for the clitoris that you mentioned. Um, what are some that you came across in your reading and your research? Yes, I mean, interestingly, the word clitoris wasn't coined until the second anatomist discovered this body part in 1672. So discovered in 1559. And then uh, like a child with their lunchbox, it got lost again by the dominant scientists until <laughs> 1672 uh, when Rainier de Graaf. And, and so he gave it the word, uh, he then coined the, the new Latin phrase clitoris for it. Uh, nicknames prior to that, I mean, although the dominant Western anatomists had been losing uh, the clitoris and discovering it, there were other scientists who were writing about it and they uh, used phrases I really liked, like um, tentago and columella. And, and I think both of those words capture the kind of tension and orgasmic property of the clitoris and the columella, the idea that actually it does become hard and strong mm. with arousal uh, but but those were not in the kind of western mainstream thought so so again we lost those i know one you picked out was was the phrase devil's teeth from <laughs> the 1600s but in fact this was not really a nickname in that you think of a nickname as being something friendly and affectionate mm. and, and the clitoris being seen as the devil's teeth were came from actually the witch hunts that took place in the 1900s both sides of the atlantic and women were strip body searched for devil's teats and and it could be little skin flaps or moles or the clitoris and it was believed that if you were in collusion with the devil he would leave a teat or a mark on your body through which he would suck your soul and i found written accounts written in the 1600s of of strip search where where women's bodies and the clitoris had been I mean, they didn't say clitoris, but they were talking about, you know, the the sign of the devil was in a shameful place kind of, you know, within her pudenda. And mm. um, so that's where the phrase devil's teat came from, which, which is just shocking when you think mm-hmm. about it. And there was one um, one woman who, who, a midwife, I think, who responded and said of of the body that actually she has no more or less than any other woman. And, and she too was accused of being a witch. The idea that it was um, 
an anomaly, that it was a strange and unusual body part. Mm -hmm. And then nicknames, in fact, that's where I think we struggle in today's society. There aren't nicknames for the clitoris. And, and if you look at slang terms for the penis, there are hundreds. And if you look at the vulva, there are there's a huge battery. And I, I look at them in my book. But, but clitoris, I think we really struggle. And, and I think uh, a lack of a nickname means that it inhibits conversation. Yeah, that's such a great point. Like it, it, in our general culture, we're still making it more invisible by not even having cutesy nicknames for it or like we do with other body parts or, and particularly genitalia. And, and indeed, this misnomer where actually people refer to the vagina and they uh, and and actually it's a vulva of which the vagina is the entrance to the vagina is part of the vulva. But it, it, but if you stick with the vagina, you focus on the tract that is to do with menstruation and reproduction. If, if you only have vagina, then you can't even put in clitoris, perineum, labia. You're, you're really, again, another layer that inhibits easy conversation about female sexuality. Yeah, and we've only recently gotten people <laughs> into saying vulva, even though lots of people still don't. Um, but yeah, going the next level of what does what comprises the vulva? What is it made out of? Or what are all the bits and pieces in it? Um, I really don't think that's a conversation people are having. And indeed, they, they are just body parts. And, and mm -hmm. this incredible anxiety about how quickly do you give children the labels? Well, actually, that children don't sexualize it. But if they have a label, it becomes much, much easier to have conversations when you're looking at sex ed and having conversations about consent and pleasure, which I think go hand in hand. And, and it's incredibly hard at 16 or 18 to say, oh, and by the way, you've got a clitoris if, if you've never mentioned it before. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great point. <laughs> you alluded to it when I asked about the nicknames, but apparently there is some debate about who or which man specifically <laughs> discovered, <laughs> I'm putting that in scare quotes, the clitoris. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I mean, like no woman had discovered it previously. I mean, for goodness sake, what was going on? Uh, I, I think this also highlights the um, what one academic refers to as kind of the vernacular culture and the highbrow culture, because clearly, clearly people were having sex and there were people mm -hmm. enjoying it. And many people did know that the clitoris existed. Um, but, it's, it, but it's about what was happening in the academic in the academic world and when I started researching my book I discovered that a lot of academic thinking in the western world about female bodies is that that Galen in classical times had said women are inside out versions of men and this mm -hmm. concept had just stuck and and if you construct a woman's body as an inside out version of men where the vagina becomes an inverted penis and the ovaries become equivalent to the testes then actually the clitoris is is like that bolt left over from constructing a set of ikea shelves or the bit of legos <laughs> that you don't know where it fits on your model um mm -hmm. And, and if that's your dominant thinking about bodies, you can see how for a long time the clitoris was marginalised and therefore Rialdo Colombo in 1559 could 
discover it. But in fact, the dominant scientist of the day quashed his discovery with the words of, this is not a feature of normal women, it's some sport of nature. Uh, and then we have de Graff in 1672, who, who writes incredibly beautifully about uh, the power of the clitoris to, for female desire and pleasure. And he says, you know, indeed, without it, no woman would choose ever to conceive or reproduce ever again. So, again, a real acknowledgement of, its, of, of what it can do. But then he was sort of his his work was just sort of lost and it wasn't until 1844 that the German scientist Cobalt really dissected a, a cadaver and was able to identify the full structure of the clitoris with its, with its bulbs and its cura, as, as well as the nub that, that is visible within the vulva. And, and at that point, and anatomically, it could no longer be denied. However, we then had a culture that was seeking to deny it. Mm -hmm. um, I found it extraordinary that it was omitted from the 1949 textbook, gold standard medical textbook, Grey's Anatomy. Yeah, it's unbelievable to me. I remember when I first learned that as an undergraduate student that the clitoris had been actively removed from medical literature, even though we had known about it in the medical literature for so many centuries. And indeed, in fact, even in 1672, de Graff knew about the bulbs and, and hinted at that the structure mm -hmm. internally was much, much larger. Um, although he wasn't able to kind of, he didn't do the detailed drawings that Cobalt did. But it, but it keeps getting lost. I mean, sheer height, she didn't discover it anatomically, but, but sheer height absolutely put it on the map in terms of her massive research of just over 3,000 women about their lived sexual experiences. And, and her research, I think it was a battery of um, 58, 59 questions. And I looked at all of them and the clitoris was only referred to in five of her questions. Yet it came up as part as answers for so many other questions. How do you experience pleasure? What do you wish you had more of in your sexual encounters? Women wrote about the clitoris time and time again. And, and sheer height was silenced by the dominant media who, who were outraged and um, didn't want it discovered. So although it wasn't <laughs> a literal discovery, it's it, they they didn't want it discovered in conversations about female sexual agency or pleasure. Very disturbing. What are some other misunderstandings you've come across about the clitoris in your research? I mean, the biggest one for me is, is that in 2021, I, when I started writing this book in my early 50s, I didn't know the biological structure of the clitoris or the way that it extended within my pelvic cavity. And the, for the majority of women that I meet and talk to they came to that information late and it is still not in high school biology textbooks it's not in sex ed books and th that was the that was the biggest discovery for me that that here is a body part that that is has been completely lost um, yeah but also in terms of whether there was enough material. When I had the idea about writing, I talked to a couple of people in the industry and they said, well, there's probably not a whole book. And, and I, I said, well, no, actually really there is a book. <laughs> yeah. 
and as we've talked about, the clitoris was seen was used as a fact that you you could be a witch. Um, um, I found that in in 1918 in the UK, the word knowing the word clitoris was used as evidence against Maud Allen uh, in a case that was looking to prove that she was a German spy. Uh, oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Freud, this idea that, that his view that the clitoris was immature and mm. um, women that experience clitoral pleasure should be treated for sexual dysfunction with, with ours in a therapist's chair and talked out of an engagement with their clitoris because uh, the proper functioning woman would experience orgasms vaginally which is just not borne out by any evidence at all. In fact, for the majority of women, direct clitoral stimulation is necessary to experience an orgasm. Yeah, I often marvel at how much harm and how delayed we are in our understanding of female sexual pleasure because of Freud. Yes, and, and he, he wrote such authority and stated as, as if it was scientific fact that this is the way it was. And I think in terms of cultural production and your question of do we know things and that question of how do we know things, mm -hmm. Freud was building on a culture that had gone before that was created both by, by the anatomists but also by philosophers and religion which which wanted to frame women as um, not sexual that had created a narrative around the fact that the good woman was chaste that it was unseemly for women to experience desire and and Freud built on that without any real critical thinking or academic inquiry yeah unfortunately for us all <laughs> Um, and I, uh, not a misunderstanding, but um, the fact that I loved learning most about the clitoris in my research is that during arousal, the clitoris fills with eight to 11 times its blood flow. Lovely. And, and that that blood is released with the pelvic contractions of orgasm. And it explains so much about how female sexuality works. And uh, that, that for me was, was the, I guess that was the most optimistic fact mm -hmm. and misunderstanding. I thought, gosh, wouldn't the world be better if just everybody knew this? Like the penis, it is a reptile. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> yes, it yeah. likes orgasm. <laughs> and that's something I often forget that a lot of people still don't know, and I teach sex ed to parents uh, and other people as well, uh, but I've had a few parents when I talk about, like, if you're talking to your kids about their anatomy, you can explain the clitoris and the penis come from similar tissues, and it kind of blows their mind. <laughs> and, and I think uh, I follow a lot of educators on Instagram, and I, and I think there is, I begin to sometimes feel it's easy to be in an in a sex positive echo chamber mm, and mm -hmm. and that is is not is not where the majority of the world is that that actually there are many many mainstream institutions who are still very uncomfortable using the word clitoris i can't advertise my book on facebook or instagram um when i've i've talked to people in the mainstream media uh, for example the women's pages of a newspaper in the uk the daily mail i was friends with um somebody who wrote for the pages and she said I just I, I couldn't do a story on this it wouldn't get signed off by the editorial board um, I cannot believe that 
I mean, I believe you, but. And, and I mean, look at the content. One of the things my daughter and I did researching the book was we went to Barnes and Nobles and bought a whole load of sex ed books for kind of the, you know, toddler, right from the very beginning of books targeted for five-year-olds through to teens. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, we were very proudly given two books for teenagers and and the woman selling them to us said these are the best-selling sex ed books in america today they were new updated in 2017 and she gave me um one designed for girls and one designed for boys and uh, the boys book um doesn't have the clitoris in it at all but it does talk a lot about sex sexual desire the fact that they will be looking forward to sex that it is normal to masturbate that they will like practice it's a good to practice so you know what you like and how it works that um, they get orgasm orgasm they have the whole gamut and in the girls book the clitoris is a tiny dot on a diagram and they do not get the word orgasm in the book once their clitoris is is brushed off as responsible for tingly feelings. Oh my and gosh. They do not get masturbation. And and the disparity. I I the 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 lack of literal sex equality mm-hmm. in 2017 was shocking. And I felt it under it. It explains so much about all those disastrous high school and college relationships where, you know, if we're telling boys, well, hey, whoopee, you know, off you go, you're going to have a lot of fun and this is how it works. Um, And you're telling girls, well, actually, you're going to get tingly romantic feelings and that's your lot. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then you know, no wonder we have a heterosexual orgasm gap where, right. where in casual hookups in in college casual hookups women get to experience orgasm 11 percent of the time yep it is a dismal state of affairs so i read your book and it really enjoyed it as i said uh but one of the things that i kept thinking to myself especially when we were talking about the historical research was just oh my god has anyone ever talked to a person with a vulva <laughs> like there was just no evidence that people with these body parts were ever consulted um did you come across evidence that that happened like did that not happen until the 70s in america like what was the trajectory of that I really love discovering Jane Sharp, who wrote in, in 1671, and she wrote a, a, a midwife's handbook. And she is very clear about clitoris and, and pleasure and, and how it works. And I, I think the reason she got away with it is, is that actually she was a midwife doing women's work and, and she went underneath mm-hmm. the radar of mainstream academic thought because that was women's issues and that was beneath the, the, the male medical profession getting involved in. And, and we know, uh, you know, it's another history, but how, um, reproduction then became annexed by a male-dominated health economy is another story but but i i did discover that but you know on the whole women didn't get to write women's lived experiences were were not recorded so there's a very big gap in our understanding in that we don't know what happened amongst women's circles you know within Mm -hmm. those women groups or female family cultures 
who knows what information was being passed between them. I suspect it's a bit like today, where within some families, you know, they Families talk openly about sex and are comfortable with it and are sex positive and, and other families are not. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I did find, and again, I talk about this difference between sort of, you know, the mainstream academic thought and, and what was happening in vernacular culture, is that actually in the 1600s, there was an emphasis in kind of the cheap tittle-tattle sex books that were mm-hmm. being sold and printed on the cheap and and kind of passed from hand to hand rather illicitly was the idea that actually female pleasure was incredibly important because of course until the reproductive cycle was understood there was a belief that that women needed to orgasm to release their part of they didn't know about the egg but they believed that there needed to be a reciprocal response in men and women. And this goes back to the notion that women's bodies were inside out versions of men. And therefore, just as the men emitted semen, that that women needed to have an an equal parallel experience. So, So those books didn't shy away from it. But we began to get this Victorian anxiety about female desire and pleasure ironically at the same time that the clitoris was mapped by cobbled and fully understood this this kind of censorious victorian idea of the importance of kind of you know chastity and of women not being sexual and and we that's when we begin to find that any books about reproductive anatomy and sexual health were banned under the Comstock laws, that there began to be obscenity laws in place, that people who insisted on writing and publishing them were were fined or imprisoned. And, and that increasingly closed down knowledge. And I think closed down women's, just as a, as a point where women were becoming freer, more educated, pushing to have stronger voices, there was the emphasis on closing women's sexual agency down, kind of ramped up um, this threat of, you know, and again, I laugh about it in my book, but actually women were, they were beginning to travel independently, you know, industrialization had opened up, you know, the train, it meant people could get from A to B more cheaply. There were factory jobs available for women, women were beginning to be more educated than ever before. Uh, women were pushing for the vote. And, and the idea that women could be independent thinkers was was incredibly threatening to, mm-hmm. to some of the patriarchy and I think they were frightened of the instability that women would bring to society and because of the way that female sexuality had been branded as immoral there was this incredible fear of kind of the loose woman or a sexually empowered woman disrupting the natural order and the health of things. Right. So a lot of regulations kicking in, censorship, shutting down anything that might promote immorality. I feel like you have already shared so many shocking things during this interview, but I wanted to ask, was there anything that you found particularly shocking in your research on the history of the clitoris? I found it very shocking once I had established and 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 because I hadn't written a book before and and people were saying, oh, I'm not too sure there's a whole book. I thought, well, I'm just going to write the whole book because I know there is a book. And I mm. believe that actually 
my life is coming together here you know and I know from my academic studies that I feel absolutely up to the academic rigor required and and I know through my passion for writing and teaching that I believe that I understand how to construct and tell a story effectively but why don't I just do it and prove that I can do it Mm -hmm. and and then I was very lucky to have an agent who loved the book and and took it to publishers for me and and what we discovered then is still this antipathy towards publishing books about female sexuality and we had a couple of publishers who came back to us and said we love the proposal the author's voice is so fresh and funny and and we learned so much but two of them we think the topic is niche oh my gosh so so the idea that people are not interested in it that it, that i mean it's it's niche you know that that tells us a number of things i mean either they don't understand how important it is for so mm-hmm. many women in terms of of having complete fulfilling sex lives um or they or they don't want to, to go there but that was almost more shocking than actually a lot of that explains all of the shocking material that I've found before when I was researching the history of the clitoris and, and the fact that that actually those shocking things have continued to play a role in women's lives and attitudes towards female sexuality. You know, we, we're, we're not over it yet. Absolutely. And that's such a great point. Tell me, what's your experience kind of teaching and talking to people about, you know, as a sex educator, as as a doctor, um, you know, do you feel do you feel the world the world is changing, and that we are with the advent of Me Too and conversations around consent, uh, and and listening to women's voices about their sexuality and how they want their sexuality interacted with? Do do you think we're at a point where where this can change? I mean, are you optimistic or not? I would say I am optimistic, but I think back to your comment about being in the sex positive echo chamber, and I, I worry a bit that that's where I am. Um, when I talk to my students at the university, they seem to learn a lot of their sex ed from YouTube, from Instagram, and I think there's some really quality sources on social media. Um, but there's also a lot of garbage on social media that are pushing, you know, patriarchal agendas and gender stereotypes and things like that. Um, but I do feel hopeful and partially it's because there's so much more accessibility to information uh, for younger people. But yeah, I could be being naive because of my sex positive bubble. <laughs> I was to say, I, I do love that there is some really good content available on social media. And I, and I think it's the perfect forum for young people in that it is delivered through a very small interface and private interface on their phone, particularly Instagram and actually I would love it if people would follow me on Instagram which is at its.personalgirls um, where I post about female sexuality um, and 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 hopefully the tone is very similar to my book um, but but I do feel optimistic about that but I still think porn is is a huge has a huge impact and it's a giant leviathan it's out there we're never running it back in how we define sex um there I think it continues to you know disrupt progress that that might be being made 
for women. That is a good point. Thank you so much for being here, Sarah. I really appreciate you taking the time. This was a fascinating conversation. And you've mentioned your Instagram handle, which I will put in the show notes as well. Um, but where else can people find you or your book on the internet? <laughs> so Instagram is really my favorite social media mm-hmm. channel. Uh, I do have a Facebook page, uh, sarah.chadwick.author on Facebook, but really Instagram and my direct messages are always open. And, and I often, I mostly reply. Um, and um I blog a little bit on goodreads.com and um, and my book is available in North America in bookshops or you can order it through bookshops as well as in Amazon. And there is a fabulous audiobook read by Esther, Esther Wayne, who is queen of audiobooks and she did a great job. So if you, um, wherever you listen to audiobooks, Spotify, Audible, you can also find it there. Great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Thank you. I've loved it. Really good to meet you. I'm grateful to Sarah for being on the podcast today and for compiling all of these historical sources into a fascinating book. While the clitoris seems to be in mainstream awareness, hopefully for good this time, this pattern of research assuming expertise about other people's bodies still hasn't gone away. I have to say, even in the modern world, sometimes when I read research or product ideas created for people with vulvas by people who don't have vulvas, I still think, have you ever talked to a person with a vulva? But like the midwives who were ignored by the medical profession, we can continue to share knowledge through our own whisper networks and sometimes shout it on podcasts. The clitoris is important and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. That's all for this episode. If you have any feedback or peer review, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at palebluedot.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. I am Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Do We Know Things, and you can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. Do We Know Things is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things.